jump into the word here in just a minute. Uh, as Pastor Kurt said, uh, this coming week from Monday through Friday is solemn assembly. For those of you who have been around here for a little while, you know what that means. For others, you may be wondering, what does that mean? So uh, very briefly, there's a lot of information on the website uh, in terms of our schedule for it. Also, in terms of what fasting really is and what fasting isn't. There's a document on fasting there. Um, there's also a devotional guide that you can read each day as you gather uh, wherever that is uh, to meet and, and to go through day by day. It kind of breaks up what we're going to talk about here uh, this afternoon uh, into sections for Monday through Friday. So uh, you, should you should look at that devotional as well, which is online. It's a PDF document. You can print it out if you want to or just look at it online. Um, what we'll be doing, Solemn Assembly is a time that we do at the beginning of the year to really dedicate ourselves for another year to Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a time where we, we do some fasting, which can be we ask people to at least cut out one meal a day. Some of you may cut out a couple meals a day. Somebody may feel like the Lord is calling them to fast even more than that. You know, if you have a medical problem or whatever, be aware of that and use wisdom in it. You don't get extra points with God because I fasted extra hard. Amen. Amen. It's, and I don't know about some of you. I used to be the worst faster in the world. I remember when I used to fast and we used to do this when I was in college. We would fast. And of course, the fast ended at midnight. At midnight, I, I remember one time I ate a large pizza. But I fasted. That was not the spirit of fasting, y'all. So, um, but we'll be fasting and, and praying. That may mean uh, television, not watching television. Wow, for a week. Cutting out the TV. Cutting out uh, internet stuff where you're just surfing on the internet. Some of you are expert surfers. You can catch any kind of wave that there is and find out that four hours later you're still on the internet just surfing doing something that doesn't really mean anything. And what we want to do is kind of take those times and dedicate them uh, to, to focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ, our walk with him, and what he's calling us to over uh, this week. So as we start the new year, we start it with prayer and with fasting, and we do that corporately. Now, some of the things in terms of the schedule, each night is different, and the schedule's on the website as well. So... Monday night, we're just asking people in their own homes, with their own families, or if you're living with some other folks, to set aside a time to come together and pray together uh, in your own homes. On Tuesday night, you can do that maybe with a couple of other friends in your community. On Wednesday and Thursday nights, we will be here. So we'll be gathering here, I'm not sure if it's 7 o'clock or 7.30, gathering at 7.30 here as uh, a whole community of believers. So for, uh, for Wednesday and Thursday, and then Friday nights, we'll be coming together in our life groups. If you're in a life group, you'll probably be getting something this week where they'll be organizing how we're going to break the fast in terms of foodstuffs. Amen? I know in our life group, we will have foodstuffs that night to break the fast. And in many of your other groups, particularly West Philly at the Mobleys, I know they will have major foodstuffs. Don't switch life groups just because you hear about the food at the Mobleys. Don't do that. That wouldn't honor God well. So don't do that. Um, but I know all the groups will be coming together for a time to pray um, and, and to consecrate ourselves, but then also to enjoy one another and break the fast together. So we look forward to this week as being a very meaningful time in the life of our congregation to begin the year. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to read a section of God's word from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to start reading at verse 14 and read through the end of the chapter. Paul says to the Corinthians, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all 
have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as your word goes forth today that you would accomplish the purpose that you desire to accomplish through it. Let our minds be challenged, cleared, and changed. Let our hearts be softened to receive what the Holy Spirit would say to us. And let the name of Jesus Christ be high and lifted up and glorified. In all these things we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What a powerful, powerful section of Scripture this is. One of my favorites. And as we begin the new year, we're beginning it uh, through this whole solemn assembly time in looking at these verses, in meditating upon these verses, in considering what God is saying to each one of us and to us corporately through uh, these verses. Paul is is writing this letter to a church that he has come to dearly love. He visits them at least three times. There's at least four letters that he writes to the Corinthians, two of which we have in Scripture. The other two are not in Scripture. We don't know where those letters are, but, but God sovereignly designed these two letters to be in our Holy Scriptures. But he wrote them other times as well. Paul, uh, when he first stayed at Corinth, he came from Athens, where uh, the work was difficult, but God sent him to Corinth and he knew God showed him that there were many people there uh, that that needed Christ and that would receive Christ. And so Paul went in faith to Corinth and preached the gospel. He stayed there for 18 months and ministered among them. That was long for Paul. We see one other stay that's longer and that's at Ephesus. But Paul was one who had get in there, set up the church, do the work, disciple, and go to the next city. But he stays in Corinth for all of 18 months. He doesn't receive any of his support from the Corinthians while he's there, but he's a tent maker, and he does his work as a tent maker so that they don't get the gospel wrong. There were preachers and teachers and philosophers and orators who were coming through Corinth who would who would uh, proclaim their words, their wisdom, and they would receive a great deal of money for doing that. And Paul said, I don't want people to mess this thing up. I'm not here to promote Paul. I'm here to promote the Lord Jesus Christ. So he works with his own hands for the entire 18 months that he's in Corinth. So Paul uh, has a deep and loving relationship, but he also has a troubled and difficult relationship relationship with this church. If you read through the letters that we have, you can see there's a lot of difficulties going on in the church, and he's accused of all kinds of things, from being weak as a speaker to being wishy-washy about his plans. He's accused all kinds of different ways by uh, the Corinthians, and, and even in this letter, at the end of this letter, he's addressing some who are still against him He calls them super apostles in one place who think that they're apostles and they're trying to undermine Paul. And Paul lays them out at the end of this letter. 
But you see this intense relationship that Paul has with this church he loves, with these people he loves. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he's laying out uh, the impact that the gospel has not only on his life personally, but on those who know Christ, those whom he's with. So I have one major thought that I want to speak on today, and that is this, knowing Christ changes everything. Knowing Christ changes everything. Knowing Christ is not a little tweak to my life that changes what I do on Sunday morning or on Saturday night, but it's, it's, it's a, a total overhaul of everything that I'm about. And we'll look at that in these verses. Some of us have been through different events in life where we have seen uh, not, not quite to the impact of knowing Christ, but in significant ways where everything has changed in our lives. Almost 27 years ago, I got married. That changed my life forever. Amen. In a good way, actually. I was so excited when I got married because I got to go home and be with my baby every night. That was so cool. And it was cool. I didn't have to go home, didn't have to catch a bus and go home. We could just chill and hang together. So being married was a wonderful change. The two become one, and we're able to share life. And as, as a newly married couple, we had, what did we have in our house? We, we didn't have a house. We had a little tiny one-bedroom apartment. We had one table. I still have the table with two chairs. The chairs are long gone. We had a bed. We had a little nightstand and a black and white TV that had a little tuner thing that you could put it on to one hour, two hours, and it would go off. We thought we were something. We didn't have a car. We didn't have anything else. But, but we were newly married. We both worked. We walked to work. Uh, we lived downtown, and our, our jobs were close by. Um, but being brand new, married, without kids or anything, we could, like, wake up on a Saturday. What do you want to do? We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll go here. We'll go there. I remember one time we woke up. Let's go to Boston. Okay, let's go to Boston. Boom, we go to Boston. Wonderful. New married, no children, just chilling and doing our thing. Now, what changed everything, what changed everything was babies. Having our first child, we were so excited, so thankful for having our first child. It changed everything, though. And, and epiphany is what I would call a BPC right now, a baby-popping church, because babies are popping out all, all over epiphany right now. So it's a BPC. Babies popping out all over the place. So some people are, are knowing this experience very well what it's like to have everything change. Okay, let's just go here. Oh, wait a second. We've got 12,486 pieces of baby paraphernalia that we need to get together. There's so much more baby paraphernalia now than there was when, when we had babies. It's crazy. We were over at a friend's house the other night, and the child who, baby Michaela, uh, who is about four or five months old, four months old, was sitting in this thing where you're supposed to scoot yourself around, but her feet weren't reaching the ground yet, but she didn't care. She was just chilling, and, and there's everything making noises and colors and lights, and baby Michaela was just chilling. But, when, but, but as, as new parents, or as a new parent, you quickly realize that making plans has changed forever. It's very different. And dudes, this is like a free piece of advice, no extra charge, but you have to learn how to maintain your testosterone level while at the same time carrying a diaper bag and looking like a dude, right? So my, my trick was you don't put it over the arm like a purse and do this. No, no, no. You carry the diaper bag like this as if it were a football. Same, same way you do when you have to go get your wife's purse. Carry it like this and just, you're good, you're good. But having a child changes everything about life so much more than knowing Christ. So much more, it changes everything in life. Let's look at these verses. Starting at verse 14, Paul says, For the love of Christ 
controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says the love of Christ controls us. One other uh, uh, interpretation or, or, or translation says the love of Christ constrains us. I like that translation. The word there actually means to impose forcible limitation. It means confining one object within certain boundaries. So Paul says the love of Christ has redefined all my boundaries. My first point is the gospel or knowing Christ changes your purpose. Knowing Christ changes your purpose. He says the love of Christ is now what guides every purpose for my life. It determines where I go. It determines where I don't go. It determines what I say. It determines what I don't say. More and more, he says in another place, that, that our minds are being conformed to the mind of Christ. And we're bringing every thought captive, he says later in this epistle, to the mind of Christ. So he says, everything now comes under his control. The, the knowing Christ changes your purpose. Some years ago, we were on a, a trip with a youth group up in New York City. And we were coming back from New York with too many people in a van. Um, and we're coming down the, the beautiful, wonderful New Jersey Turnpike. Amen? What a beautiful stretch of road that is. All the beautiful sights all along the way. Billboards and the like. But we're coming down the New Jersey Turnpike. And if you've been down that section of road, you know that there's a place where uh, it breaks up and there are three lanes coming south that are just for cars and vans and stuff. And then there's also three lanes that are coming south for trucks and buses, right? So you have six lanes in all, but at a certain point in time, they narrow down into one section of road. And so we were coming down the road in our church van filled with kids, and I look on my left-hand side, and I see uh, a, a semi-tractor-trailer, 18-wheeler coming up along beside of me. It's pulling ahead of me. It's hemming me in. But I'm like, that's cool because I got my right side. I look on my right side, there's a tractor-trailer coming up on my right side as well. And it's hemming me in, and all these lanes are disappearing all around me. And so I don't have a bunch of other lanes now. It's hemming into one or two or three lanes, but, but the, these tractor-trailers are coming each way. And maybe you've been in a place in life or a time you can remember when everything slowed down and almost stopped. And it was slow motion, and you can see, oh, goodness, this is not going to end well. This does not look good. And my wife said the most deep, wonderful prayer I've ever heard in my life. She said, Jesus! I don't even think she said, Jesus, help. She just said, Jesus! Because the Bible says, they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. So I just remember... I'm driving. I remember closing my eyes and putting the, 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 the gas all the way to the floor. If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out with the gas on the floor, y'all. And that van had about as much pickup and get up as a wheelbarrow has. It, it, it was not a high-quality vehicle, but... I think God picked us up and moved us ahead a little bit on that highway because we ended up okay. But, but the reality here is we were in a place where there was all this room, but now we were being hemmed in. And that's what Paul is saying. We're being hemmed in on every side. I thought I could go here. I want to do this. What do you feel like doing today? I'll do this. I'll make these plans for my life. But he says, no, the love of Christ controls us. He died for me. One died for all, therefore all died, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them. Christ died for me. And he realizes the depth of this love of the eternal God for him. And he says, now that determines everything about my life. Knowing Christ changes 
your purpose. Secondly, knowing Christ changes your perspective. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul says there used to be a way that I looked at everyone, even Jesus. And I viewed them just like I viewed Jesus according to the flesh, according to the, the, the input that came into my mind, what I understood, what I could see, the way I made sense of everything according to the flesh. Paul uses that, that phrase a lot in Scripture. In Greek, it's kata sarka. There's another phrase that he uses, karta, kata numati, according to the Spirit. So these two phrases he contrasts, but here he says, we no longer view anyone, kata sarka, according to the flesh. Now we see things a different way, even Christ. Because Paul once saw Christ according to the flesh. Paul was a Pharisee, was a persecutor of the church. When the first martyr of the church, Stephen, was stoned, Paul was there in a position of authority as the one to whom people put their coats at his feet as they threw stones at Stephen. And as Stephen gloriously uh, was stoned to death, but looked at Jesus and went right into his presence with Jesus standing, come on, saying, come on, son. But Paul was there persecuting the church. And you know that one day he was on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians, have them thrown in jail, perhaps have some killed. And God stopped Paul in his tracks, knocked him off of his horse and revealed himself to him in Jesus Christ. Up till that point, Paul had saw Jesus as he'd heard about this itinerant preacher who supposedly did some miracles. I don't know that I really believe that. But even if he did, how could he be the savior? He died on a cross, a Roman cross. And, he, and Paul knew enough of his Bible to know that, that it said in the law that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. How could one who is cursed be my savior? How could he be Messiah? How could he be God? And these foolish people are believing this and spreading these lies. And so I'm going to use every piece of my energy, everything that I have to stop this heretical nonsense from happening. But when Jesus was revealed to Paul, he didn't see him that way any longer. No longer according to the flesh. No longer a man who, who was ingloriously crucified. But now he sees the Lord of lords and king of, king of kings who died on our behalf and was raised up again and is seated at the right hand of God. Is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He sees the glorious risen Christ. He has a brand new perspective. And he says, and not only Christ, but we no longer see anyone according to the flesh. We don't see you according to the flesh. Now, to the Corinthians, this was crazy talk. This was a church, if you can believe it, a church filled with people who had issues. Can you believe that? People had issues. And in Corinth, people were into status. They were into being known as somebody. And so whether that was through their oratorical skills, whether that was through their material possessions, whether it was through their wisdom and learning, whether it was through their Jewish roots, they found meaning, purpose, and, and identity through all of these things. But Paul says, we no longer look at anyone according to the flesh. In other words, what you think you are when you smell yourself and say, boy, I smell good. He says it doesn't mean anything anymore. That's crazy to a Jewish person who prided himself on his Jewishness and looked down on anyone who wasn't a Jew. It's craziness to a Greek philosopher or philosopher or someone who's into philosophy and has studied and become learned to say, you know what, all that learning and study, it means nothing compared to the cross of Christ. It was crazy to an, artisan, an artisan who, who became rich through their trade uh, and, and, and had great status because of his wealth to say that I don't look at you that way anymore. 
You are one of two things. You are my brother and sister in Christ or you're someone who needs Jesus. That's how we look at you now. No longer according to the flesh. No longer according to the flesh. So this has a a radical change in perspective. Look back just a couple of chapters with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading at verse 15. In, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul is contrasting the old way of the law of Moses to the new way, the new covenant of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And he says these words starting in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Paul is saying here that there is a a, a glorious redemption that happens that Moses wasn't able to accomplish, but Christ has. He contrasts old covenant and new covenant. And the best thing that ever happened in the realm of humanity until Christ was the old covenant. Was the law of Moses and what Moses, what God had done through Moses and how he had revealed himself. But look at look at verse 10 in that same chapter as Paul is dealing with this. He says these words. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. What's he saying? The old covenant was the most wonderful creation that that God had ever revealed to to the world, but it spoke of what he was going to do one day. That was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In in, in In the perfect time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Amen? And so in this perfect time, God reveals that. And so what he's saying here in verse 10 is the glory as great as it was of the old covenant. It was the glory that lit up the entire sky. Now, as compared to the brightness of the glory of Christ, that itself is like darkness. He says this glory is so great that anything else that ever seemed glorious pales in comparison. It's not worthy of even looking at. He says Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. So now we view everything through through Christ. So to these people who were caught up in status and positions, Paul says it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's all laid on equal footing at the foot of the cross. So what does that mean for us in practical ways? For one, it means we abandon comparison as a means of our identity. Wow. We no longer view anyone according to the flesh. We abandon comparison. To some of you, that may seem like bad news. (laughs) Because I've got my identity wrapped up in some things that I feel really good about. I've done well in this or that area of life. My identity is wrapped up in it. And, and, and that's how I know myself. That's how I come to grips with myself. That's what gets me up and motivated every morning because of the education I've achieved, the material possessions I've achieved, the wealth I've achieved, the status I have, my family history, whatever it is, I feel great about those things. But Jesus says, bring them to the foot of the cross. In light of the glory of Christ, they mean nothing. Nothing. To some of you, that's great news because your identity has been so severely beaten by Satan and by sin that you see yourself in all kind of jacked up ways. You've been hurt. You've been deeply wounded in so many ways. You, 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 you've messed up so much in sin you have so such a list of sins against you and such a weight of guilt and shame upon you that you can't carry it anymore and Jesus says we know and Paul says we no longer look at you that way you're now in Christ you give all of that up that's not your identity your sin and your shame 
All of those things are wrapped up and they're, and they're washed by the blood of Jesus. So Paul says, we no longer compare ourselves. Secondly, what that would mean is we find the fullness of our identity, our hope, and our security in Christ. So even the, the past couple of weeks as I've been preparing for this message and praying over this message, I've begun to, to catch myself in thinking according to the flesh versus according to the spirit. And I was like, ah, that's according to the flesh. Larry, get it back together. Get this thing in here. I'm, my thinking's wrong. It's according to the flesh. But, but I'm, so we, we find the fullness of our identity, our hope, and our security in Christ and nowhere else. When you're finding it anyone, anywhere else, just know that that is thinking according to the flesh versus according to the spirit. So the gospel changes your purpose the gospel changes your perspective. And thirdly, the gospel changes your person. It changes who you are. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus used the terminology being born again. He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, Lord, what are you talking about? Can I enter into my mother's womb a second time? Number one, that seems impossible. Number two, it seems gross. I'm not getting this. John picks up on that language. Peter uses that language, being born again. Uh, uh, Ezekiel, the, Old Test the great prophet of the Old Testament, said, I will give you a new heart. Paul says, I will make you, God has made you a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. Radical newness has come. The word for new there denotes a, a qualitatively better as compared to what existed before. The rabbis used a similar terminology when they talked about someone uh, converting from wh wherever they were at, paganism, to Judaism. And they would use this phrase, he who brings a foreigner and makes him a proselyte is as if he created him. Paul and Jesus are saying, this is not as if you are a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation eternally changed from the inside out. You are different. That very idea and that reality will be attacked in you in every possible way, both from without and from within. But this is a reality that we as believers in Jesus Christ hold to. I'm not, I'm not a computer expert by any means, but when I look at my computer, I tend to see um, if there's any nicks or dents on it, if there's anything wrong with it, but the reality is that piece of plastic around it isn't really my computer. It's what's inside. It's the guts. It's the hard drive. And so, so, so what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, and what the Lord is saying to us is, I have switched out your hard drive. The old hard drive was corrupted. The old hard drive was a virus fest. The old hard drive had nothing working well on it. It was slow as all get out. But I've given you a brand new hard drive. You know what that hard drive is? That hard drive is the Holy Spirit. Or I'd rather say the Holy Ghost. The new hard drive is the Holy Spirit of God. He says, I have made you a new creation. I put myself in you. God put himself in us by his Holy Spirit. He says, you have brand new life in me. That old way is not going to work anymore. I remember years ago when I was in seminary, I was working on a paper. And I had one of the first Macintosh computers that came out. You remember 
Some of you who are old enough, 1980s, screen about this size. It was about this, this big and this wide, and, and you could actually take it from place to place. I, I didn't, it wasn't a laptop. They didn't have laptops, but I had a, a backpack for it, so it was a backtop. So I would take it to the library thinking, yeah, I got a Macintosh. I can bring my computer. I don't have to take notes and go home and type it into my computer. I can take it wherever I'm at. Wasn't even any internet back then. But, but I took my computer with me, and I thought I was something. And one day I'm working on a paper, page 22. I'm just finishing up my seminary paper. And my little Macintosh computer, there's a little apple that turned into a bomb right in the middle of the screen. And that sucker was gone forever, never to be seen again. My computer still looked good on the outside, but something was wrong inside. Something was wrong inside. So, so, so Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, I'll give you a brand new hard drive. No more bomb on the screen. You don't need to lose your paper. You don't need to lose anything else. I've come that you might have life. So we, we, we receive a brand new person. In Christ, I'm brand new. What distinguished me as a person, what plagued me as a person, what branded me as a person, what helped me, what hindered me, what defined me, it's all gone. Now, my identity is in Christ. I belong to Him. I live for Him. I hope in Him. I'm empowered by Him. Christ is my life. So he says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So not only does it change our person, but it also changes our profession. Look at verses 18 through 22. He says, starting at verse 18, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Thank you, Jesus. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I don't know about anyone else. That seems crazy to me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Our profession is changed forever. And I'm not speaking just in terms of profession of what we say or profess, but who we are and what we do. Some of you know yourselves as teachers. You're a teacher. Some of you may be Lawyers, some of you may be doctors, some of you may work uh, somewhere else. You may be a student, you may be a mother, you may be a husband. We know ourselves in all of these different ways, different professions that we take on. But this, the, this, the verses here tell us that we have a brand new profession. And that is that we are now ambassadors for Christ. We are his ambassadors because... God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. Now, even these words would sound strange in some ways to anyone in Corinth who wasn't already bathed in the doctrine of the gospel and of Paul. Because in Corinth, like many of the other cities there uh, in, in Greece and in the Roman colonies, they had many gods that they, uh, that they worshipped. They had different temples in, in Corinth. Aphrodite had a temple. Uh, Poseidon had a temple. There were other gods that they served who had temples. And the whole uh, emphasis of the pagan religions that they were involved in was to do whatever they needed to do to reconcile themselves to God. But Paul says you can't reconcile yourself to God. God was in Christ reconciling himself, reconciling you to himself. God is the one who took the beef between you and him and took it on himself and reconciled you to himself. It was totally, completely a work of God. That word reconciliation means to reestablish proper, friendly 
interpersonal relations, after these have been disrupted and broken, God said, you can't do that. I have to do it for you. And in Christ, he reconciled the world to himself. So as one who has been reconciled to God, he says these crazy words in verse 19, towards the end of the verse, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I love the fact that through these verses, Paul is never talking about me. He's talking about us. He's talking about the group that he's with, but also saying to the Corinthians, God has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. But when I read those words, the holy, righteous, perfect God of the universe with all power in his hands has entrusted, look around you, to us the message of reconciliation. Look in a mirror. Consider your life for a little bit. God has entrusted to you and to us the ministry of reconciliation. He entrusts that ministry to we who are unreliable, inconsistent, selfish, and weak. If it ever seemed like God should have a plan B, it's right here, right now. Are you sure you want to entrust the ministry of reconciliation to me? Really? You want to do that? Really? Are you sure? There must be a plan B. But God has no plan B. He never did. Because his plan A said, when I call you, when I make you a new creation, when I give you a new perspective, I put my Holy Spirit in you. And as sure as you're alive right now, I will transform you day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, until you go to be with me or I come to be with you. I will transform you into my glorious image. And therefore, I entrust this ministry to you. I make you my ambassador. You are an ambassador for Christ if you're a believer. I remember some years ago, there was a lot of controversy, uh, with, and there always is, over who is a role model and who's not a role model. Uh, there were some sports dudes, particularly, that were being told, you're a role model. and say, no, I'm not a role model. I'm not a role model. The reality is, in one sense, they are because people are looking to them. Whether you're a good role model or whether you are a jacked-up role model, you're a role model because people are looking at you. The same is true as ambassadors for Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, you are his ambassador. It's not, will I take on ambassadorship or will I not? No, he has given it to you. It is a part of the package of coming to Christ. You're an ambassador, so as an ambassador, you are the one who represents the president. You represent the prime minister. You represent the country where you come from, and you find yourself in a foreign country, but you've been given a message that you can't veer from to the right or to the left. You can't change it. It's not your own message. It's the message that you've received, and it's the message that you give. You are an ambassador. When I think of someone as an ambassador, I think of someone who has high status, who has great privileges. You know, they're probably drinking a little wine and having a little cheese and, you know, meeting with the other ambassadors and saying important things and, and wearing the best clothes and going to the best restaurants and places and palaces and presidential suites and you are a big shot as an ambassador. But Paul uses very unambassadorial language here. When he says, the end of verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. That word implore also means beg. Would you want to, can you imagine an ambassador saying, I beg you, please, listen, I implore you, 
Be reconciled to God. Paul's saying, I'm not here for myself. In Philippians, he says, our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. That's where I belong, but I'm here right now. And because I'm here, I'm going to share the message that I was given to share. And I'm not trying to be a big shot. I'm not trying to be the best looking dude on the block or the one who is the most privileged among you. But I'm going to get down in the gutter if I have to. And I'm going to beg and plead with you, be reconciled to God. This message changes your profession. You are an ambassador for Christ. Question is, what kind of ambassador are you? Wonder for us if if you came into a new relationship with someone, would it take them a long time to figure out that you love Jesus? Or would that be pretty quick? Would they know, oh my goodness, there is something radically different about him. There is something uh, utterly different about her. That, that is Jesus Christ. They talk about this love for God. I don't understand it, but I'm attracted to it. Or, I don't understand it, but I'm repulsed by it. It's foolishness. The reality is, If you're an ambassador for Christ, it should not take long for someone to know that you deeply love God and that that is the primary purpose of your existence. You inhale and exhale and get up every day because God has given you life through Christ and in order that his word might be proclaimed to a lost and a dying world. That's what Paul understood. The last thing today is... The gospel not only changes your purpose, your perspective, your person, and your profession, but the gospel changes forever your position. Look at verse 21. One of the great synopsis in all of Scripture laying out the truth of the gospel. As Paul is begging for them to be reconciled to God, think of this. He's writing to a church and saying, be reconciled to God. He says these words. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says that knowing Christ changes your position before God forever. He says the one that knew no sin, the one who lived perfectly in this world, who never sinned in any way. There was nothing that would stick to him. There was no sin whatsoever in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life, but it says he became sin for you. That's Paul's appeal. He became sin so that everything that your sin and my sin and the Corinthian sin and the sin of everyone that he died for Everything that you deserve because of your sin was experienced by Jesus. He became sin on that cross. I want to look at one last scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through to 24 as we close. Knowing Christ changes your position forever. He says... 1 Corinthians 1, 22. For Jews demand, a, demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. The, the Greek word there is scandalon. It's a scandal that God would come in the flesh and die on a cross. To Jews, it was a scandal. It's a stumbling block. And he says, and to Greeks, foolishness. The word in Greek there is morion. We get our word moron from that. Do you think I'm a moron? How can I believe that? To Jews, it's foolish. It's a stumbling block. To Greeks, it's foolish. It doesn't, it's not as high as their so-called wisdom. But he says, but to those who are the called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This gospel changes forever our position before a holy God. And he says, the one who knew no sin became sin so that in him you can become the righteousness of God in him. We stand before a holy God with all of our mess, with all of our past, with all of our fleshly stuff that we're still going through. We stand before him holy and righteous. And one day when he comes back, not only will we be declared righteous, but with our new body, we will be holy righteous in such a way that we can perfectly worship him and be with him and enjoy relationship with him forever. God in Christ changes everything about our lives. The gospel changes your purpose, your perspective, your person, your profession, and forever your position. I pray that as we begin this new year, 2012, that we won't be so concerned with Nostradamus or the Mayan calendar or some nonsense that's out there. But we would concern ourselves with Christ and that we would realize in deepening ways as we worship him, as we as we read his word and as we come together with his people, that knowing him has changed everything about my life. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. What an honor. What a privilege. What a calling. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Oh God, pierce our hearts. Pierce our hearts to know what good news this is. That, Lord, as for many of us to know Christ, let it not be something that has tweaked our life in some small way, that has made some minor adjustments in how we live. But, God, we pray that as we grab a hold of the truth of the gospel of Christ, and even more so, as you grab a hold of us, that we would be changed from glory to glory in Christ Jesus. Have your way, O oh God. Lord, may we see you clearly as we go through this week of solemn assembly, of fasting, not to put on any kind of show, not to look any certain kind of way, and not to brag about anything that we've done for you, but simply to set aside a time in our lives to seek your face. Oh God, I pray that this week will be extraordinary in many lives as we see you clearly and as you move in our hearts to live according to your word. Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.